Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with private chef Jane Hudson, food writer Lucas Holweg, and probably the most influential of social media food influencers, the photographer Clark and Wellboy. And we're discussing These Delicious Things, a charity cookbook featuring recipes and childhood food memories from the likes of Nigella Lawson, Jamie Oliver and Stanley Tucci, which is a must on your Christmas present list this year. She describes cooking as chasing, um, chasing the memories of her grandmother, chasing home, chasing her face, chasing her smell. And, And you talked earlier about people using food as a sort of emblem of their identity. And that's very much what this story is about. The idea began when Jane and Lucas hunkered down on a winter's night, as Jane writes in the introduction, wondered if a collective memoir featuring the shining lights of the British food scene could raise money for the charity Magic Breakfast. With the help of Clark and Boy's contact list and influence, it's become the best anthology of its kind that I've seen, and I think sets a new standard in charity fundraising. I took them back to that winter's night, a couple of bottles in, to recapture the thought process. It was in the middle of lockdown, but in one of those brief moments where we were allowed to see maybe six people. And um, we were quite excited to see each other. And um, there were a few cocktails, I think, probably involved. Lucas is very good at making cocktails. Um, And everyone was chatting and Lucas and I sort of were huddled down one end of the table. And we just got rather excitedly talking about food, as we often do. And we were discussing how food sort of, the, the memories around food are really quite extraordinary and very unique. I think that's probably because um, with when eating food and preparing food, you actually use all the senses. So I think memory lodges in all the senses. So it is a multi-sensory memory, um, and they sort of come. You see the plate, and then then as you talk, as you think about it further, you hear the sounds, the voices who were there, the laughter, the people, the table, maybe trees if you're outside, and the wind and in in, in in the boughs of them, that kind of thing. And anyway, we were sort of lax, waxing lyrically, um, probably very boringly for everyone else. And um, after the, everyone had gone, I got to thinking. I've been thinking about doing a book and how to do it and how to raise some money actually um, for those um, sort of who might need it most and that was where the idea of a compilation cookbook came in and I put the two ideas together and called Lucas and said would you be up for doing a compilation cookbook which has its heart in food memories and he said yes and he said yes which is the lovely thing so lucas what did yes mean for you what was the collaborative element that you were bringing to it well i don't yes it's funny i don't know what i i that i know what yes meant at the time but um think, thinking about it i was excited by this idea of you know, of of doing a book that I, I love that memory aspect because that's when I've written about food. That's a big thing for me, you know. And I, I but I also think it was it was an opportunity to get some nice writing about food together as well as just a recipe book, and and that that was exciting. And I think you know clearly there are there are some amazing sort of food writers out there who write really beautifully and evocatively um, and bring themselves into what they do. But actually, these sorts of compilations rarely do that. So it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful opportunity to sort of bring the thing that, you know, is really exciting about food writing 
um, bring together voices from different people, really, and that and that you know that that that's what that's what drew me into the idea. And also, it was a it was a lovely thing to do for a good cause during lockdown when, as cooks, we didn't have a huge amount. Uh, to do perhaps well it's interesting isn't it that you know the, the fact that you're talking about food memory and uh, you know absolutely we talk a lot a lot about food memory on this show uh, particularly from people who have come from other places they've left the old country behind and they cook themselves real by you know kind of going back to their grandmothers and their mothers and talking through a recipe which conjures up all sorts of memories of identity and connection and belonging it's so rich and, and we'll talk about some of those in, in your food moments later but i wonder if the fact that you were talking about food memory at all had something to do with that loss of your own because of lockdown you know we were sort of taken away from everyone we weren't allowed to eat with people we were taken away from the restaurants we love did was that the thing that prompted you in the first place jane um i i think um in in a sense, yes. I think it was, um, I mean, certainly food memories are by, by their very nature nostalgic. And I think there was a, a, a sort of, a, a sort of yearning for nostalgia, for belonging, for gathering together, for community, because that's what I think affected people the most, the loss of those things. And, um, and even when you're talking about food memories somehow because because like I say this thing about them being multisensory they become incredibly vivid and for a moment you do live them um during lockdown I did some sort of takeaway cooking as, as Lucas did as well and I, as I in my sort of um little sort of advertising for it I'd always try to do a little foreign dish of some place and, and I'd write a little story and, and quite of and my memory of that place um Basically, the idea was to, I mean, I didn't actually say this, you know, explain it, but, but my reasoning for doing it was to evoke a sense of another place, to let other people share in my memories. And just for the time of getting that food on their tables, even their homes, they had a little holiday by sharing my memory of it. And I think that's what food memories can do. They can really transport you and you can connect on a very deep human level because food and eating is something that humanity has always had. It's the one common thread from the very beginning of time of, 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 of man standing up until, until our far futures, until maybe man collapses again. Um, it's, 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 I think it's the strongest thread we have and that's why those memories really do take us bind us connect us and um join us i think it was interesting though that we were sitting around a table and that you know for those who are lucky enough to to be in a situation to eat food for pleasure rather than necessity there is um certainly for me food and sitting around a table with friends and eating and drinking and sharing is joy and actually that what lockdown did in a sense was deprive us of that joy of of community and friendship and you know i mean it, there were there were other opportunities to explore those things but that very simple one of sitting around a table with a with a, a plate of steaming grub that you are sharing and enjoying and 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 you know pouring wine down your neck at the same time that was that was a thing that was a it felt like a special moment that and actually that that maybe perhaps i mean certainly was in in my my mind um it's somewhere um as it always is really yeah 
it's interesting, you know, you're talking about memories and I'm just looking through all these incredible names of the people who agreed to take part in this this fantastic project. And each of those names, I mean, there are so many of them, but even if I just say their names, they conjure up memories for me and for presumably for all the listeners, you know, and with it, it kind of gives this extraordinary sort of sweeping history of what's happening in British food. If I were just to say, just to pick a few, Nigella, Jeremy Lee, the Hendersons, you know, Margot and Fergus, Gil Mella, Andy Oliver, Rick Stein, Melissa Hemsley, Ravinda Bogle, Sally Clark. I mean, they tell a story of Britain alone. And so to go beyond their names, beyond their recipes to their memory of that, it makes a very rich anthology. Did it just evolve naturally when you were talking to them about their recipe and ask them for a memory? Or did you kind of have to, I don't know, coach it out of them? And and how did you do that? Who who talked to these people? Interestingly, each of us probably appre- approached about a third of the people. Um, and, you know, there were some people, um, I think those who felt more confident about writing, wrote it straight off and it was sort of pretty perfect. Others needed, start, needed interviewing. Um, it, but everyone, everyone got the idea, I think, about this, that, that we didn't just want a sort of a recipe intro. We wanted them to tell a story and something quite personal and actually quite revealing about themselves wouldn't you say jane um absolutely i think i think seeing that they were childhood food memories it's sort of the time where it's, it's sort of time before you put on the masks which you you then go out to face the world so they're very intimate and they are very authentic um by their very nature of being their younger selves and i think yeah it is it's 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 fascinating and very heartwarming quite often to have these little vignettes of i suppose childhood memoir um, by so many different people in one collection. Well, exactly. And, you know, I, I do get quite a lot of these books through and they're very often just recipes and a, uh, just a, a line or two, which doesn't make for a great book. Whereas this does. I mean, let's go through some of the food moments that you've chosen from the many, many recipes and memories. Um, the Lemon Granita by Anna Del Conte. Jane, this is one of yours. Why did you choose this one? Um, simply because it's just so, I thought it was just so incredibly charming. Um, she, she tells a story, um, but what part of it is, is when it snowed, where she lived in Italy, um, they would run to the top of the house. There, there was an attic there where, where it seems that this was the realm of just the children. It's almost like the secret attic. It, it's as if the adults didn't go there. I think children are very adept at creating their own private universes wherever they are. I know, I know I certainly had them. You know, people have dens and what have you. Um, um, and this was very much a place that was seemed very quiet. It was theirs, but also it had little windows out onto the roof. And when it snowed, then her and her brother would grab tall glasses um, from the kitchen, squeeze lots of fresh, imagine lots of very fresh, delicious, sweet and tangy um, Italian lemons, lemons, squeeze them straight into the glass, mix in probably way too much sugar, run up. You can always hear that little shoes clattering on, on wooden floorboards as they run up to the roof, open these little windows, grab fistfuls of snow, cram them into their glasses, run back to the kitchen, pour more lemon juice on top and more sugar <laughs> and then um, and gulp them down. And what I loved about this is like this is um this obviously isn't my food memory but I felt 
that I was there. I totally felt what it was like to be a child, to be one of those children um, amongst them, that childlike joy, anticipation, excitement that the, that the weather had brought the snow and with it these delicious drinks that they could only get themselves and only get at that particular time of year. <laughs> it is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, these are the kind of things you just want to lie in bed and read or lie on the sofa on a really rainy day like it is today and just go there with these wonderful people. It's the same with the Simon Hopkinson rice pudding, which you which you also chose. And I actually have to make this rice pudding tonight. I just don't have any option. Tell us why you chose this one. Um, this was... Um because he, he very much insists on the sort of scorched top. And it reminded me of my, my grandmother. Um, she was a German grandmother. She came over um, in, in 1938 from Nazi Germany. And although she'd lived most of her life here, she always had this very strong German accent. And she would make rice pudding. And for some reason, she always called it grease pudding. I think it probably had something to do with the accent or her not understanding that it was actually rice pudding. I don't know. But as a family, we knew it as grease pudding. And obviously, we didn't have images of grease at all. It was this very delicious rice pudding and she made it perfectly the rice was always soft but not mushy the creaminess was delicious the 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 spices she put in were perfectly matched with the sugar and then there was this always scorched top which was um sort of a bit of a fighting point point between us siblings as um as that was always the, the the very best bit so i sort of very much identified with his memory of his um pudding and 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 having the scorched top with with my own experience with my grandmother yeah, and that is the point of food memories, because they're shared memories, even if you don't actually share the same memories, Lucas. I mean, you've chosen a memory that couldn't possibly be yours uh, by Beth Melika Dahl. Um, but it, it's the feeling that you can share. Is that why you chose that uh, recipe? Absolutely, it is. I mean, I think um, reading this for, for the first time, it sort of, it, it touched me. It's... It's very beautiful and it's written a bit almost like a poem, actually. Um, the food the food is emblematic of something far beyond the dish itself. And it's about how this dish um, conjures up for her the, the places that she left behind as a small child and above all her grandmother. It conjures up. Um, the contours of her grandmother's face and, um, you know, the memories of their life together. And the name of the dish, um, which I'll try and pronounce, though I will no doubt get it wrong, is Yedemir Gökbakir, and it means iron earth, copper sky, which is a bit like being stuck between uh, a, a rock and a hard place. Um and they've, 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 they've come from Turkey to Britain. Um, and she's given the dish this name because it expresses the feeling of being caught between the new life and the old, the things and people she has left behind. Um, and she describes cooking as chasing, um, chasing the memories of her grandmother, chasing home, chasing her face, chasing her smell. Um, and, and you talked earlier about people um, pe- people using food as a sort of emblem of their identity, and that's very much what this this story is about. It's about a sense of identity that is retained somehow despite leaving a home far away, and and the people that one loves. 
and it gives us an opportunity to to experience emotionally experience something that we don't know but yet we yes. can we can connect and that is the the power of food but it's the power superpower of a food memory um your fourth food moment or your second food moment and the final food moment uh lucas is risotto milanese by barney horton um of all of them i mean because both of you had the opportunity to, to pick from lots and lots and lots of recipes why this one the the, the pieces that i like most in the book uh, personally were the most sort of well, the ones that were lyrical and I think that lyricism and food memory are a, are a sort of natural match they're a natural pairing um, this was just it captured a particular moment a particular time in his life there was sort of there was a romance perhaps even you know sort of teenage um I didn't. I, I. I. don't know whether this was unfair to read this into it, but the. the but the, the. The young woman who had given him a lift to the station in Milan, and they went to eat risotto together. I felt that there was something, you know, that that the food was emblematic of this. This incredibly special, quite intense moment. He said he. I, they went off to eat. Eat risotto milanese, um, a, a short stroll from the central station in Milan. And he, he describes this, the, the memory of this dish as coming back to him periodically. Um, he says it's a guardian angel of endings and beginnings of sadness and happiness, which is really wonderful. And I sort of, I don't know whether this is what he meant, but I sort of felt as though it was this combination of this, this sort of joy of the moment, of this, this pleasure, of this sort of perfect simplicity, of this vivid yellow plate of risotto and he talks about the the, the the sort of perfection of um of the of the little silver pot of of grated parmesan he says it felt like coming home um but it's also there i think this sort of this 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 happiness and sadness this strange duality of the th- of, of the thing maybe there's slightly this melancholy of being unable to recapture it or the perfection of that moment and he says he he went back to milan years later tried to find the restaurant couldn't find it but this memory keeps sort of coming back into his consciousness and i and i sort of, i sort of wonder if um you know it, it, there are several moments like this in the book from other people that you feel is like one of those moments that meant that 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 that, that formed people at a, a relatively early age and and perhaps directed them to devoting their life to food in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a a little novel, really, isn't it? You know, we don't need to have experienced it ourselves, but somehow we we dive into this shared emotion uh, just for that little moment in time. Very, very beautiful. Um, let's talk about. The Magic Breakfast. Um, I work a lot with the Food Foundation. I do their podcast every week, uh, campaigning against food insecurity for every child in the UK. Um, Very interested in holiday hunger. And this is morning hunger. Jane, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? I suppose their mission is to ensure that no child is too hungry to learn. um, Because... Quite often children living in food insecurity won't have had breakfast. They might not even have had proper supper. 
So unless they have morning nutrition, they won't really be able to be in the state of mind to be able to absorb new information. Because obviously a child's mind is growing, doing all sorts of different things like building bones and and muscles and all those other things that, that it's doing. But to actually to take on learning um, in school is is is, is doesn't really happen on on uh, in an empty system. So that's what this charity is really focusing on: giving kids who probably already disadvantaged in certain respects, um, at least a fighting chance of, of learning um, while they're in school. They say that a child who doesn't have this sort of help, by the time they finish primary school, can be up to 10 months behind their peers simply because they've been hungry um, and for no other reason. So I, I think it's a very important. Yeah which is of no use to the rest of the nation as well. We need a productive workforce. We need children to be learning. We need everyone to be contributing. It's a, it sounds like a really, mm. really excellent charity. Um, how does it work? Uh, there's a QR code for people to find out more. Absolutely. So, yes, in the book, there is a QR code. That will take, it, take you to a donation page. Um, but also, um, because the team worked, worked um, we, didn't, we didn't get paid to do this. Um, and the reason... and every, Everyone, that's the photographers, every, everyone, the whole team. Um, and the reason... And it was a massive team. It was a massive team. I mean, the acknowledgements go on for pages. Yes, everyone was incredibly kind <laughs> and incredibly generous. And, and many, many people gave an awful lot of themselves um, f- with the aim of giving to, 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 to others. Um, and because of that, with every book that's sold, 18 children will receive a nutritious breakfast. So the sales of each book really does make a difference. And if you're buying, you know, I, I know quite a few people who have just bought it as their sort of ubiquitous Christmas present for everyone. And if you do buy, you know, two, three, five, however it might be, the, those numbers really add up very, very quickly. It, it makes a very, very big difference to the charity and their abilities to reach as many children as possible. So let's bring in the third member of your team, um, one of the biggest names in food, social media, Clark and Wellboy. A charity book like this sells on the back of its contributors, obviously, and, and each of them have shared on Instagram until it's literally flooded my feed. But your connections are so important, as is your influence on social media. And it's and this is something you've done very successfully already, haven't you? Well, um, I have worked on a few charity books before, including uh, Cook for Syria and Bake for Syria cookbook. Um, And those went on to become a global campaign and raised a lot of money for refugees with um, contributions of recipes and stories from lots of different chefs and home cooks, um, including the likes of Jamie Oliver and uh, Nigella Lawson. So it's been incredible to have loads of people involved, like uh, household names, um, and to encourage people to find out about um, the cause and the charities and to try and do something themselves as well, whether it's through a bake sale or a supper club or just learning the recipes and understanding the culture a bit more. So how does it work? Because it's quite a new phenomenon, isn't it? You know, you've got a charity campaign going on and we understand now that we need to borrow influence to really kickstart that campaign. I mean, I work with a food foundation and we, we used Marcus Rashford to fantastic effect. How, how does it work? I mean, what do you actually do to make those numbers grow? I guess the main thing is to um, to, to find, uh, to spread awareness, but also to find, as you mentioned, um, those people of influence across um, different um, nationalities, um, from home cooks to celebrity chefs, 
um, to household names, to up-and-coming emerging chefs as well. So we tried to have a great cross-section of contributors uh, from different backgrounds, from different cultures and um, different ages as well, I, I would say. And, um, and it's really fascinating to see, um, you know, the combined and uh, unified love of food and all the different types of memories that people have around their childhood and memories of food and what led them into uh, a career in food. So I think um, apart from just being a cookbook, it's also a very lovely um, storybook as well that people can share. And of course, uh, it's not just a great gift for your family and your friends and your loved ones, but also you're gifting, you know, meals to hungry children before they go to school. And Actually, you've put your own food memories in the book as well, haven't you? Tell us about it. Um, my food childhood memory uh, is growing up in Australia, um, eating Vegemite sandwiches. And so um, pretty, pretty basic, but that's basically my favourite you know, favorite food. I still eat Vegemite on toast or if I can get it. Otherwise, it's Marmite on toast these days in the UK. Um, but yeah, growing up in Australia, I love Vegemite. love um, that memory of just you know waiting to be picked up by... My parents, so you know, um, the the childcare centre that we we were playing at would offer Vegemite sandwiches. So um, actually, a few years ago, I was working with um, a lovely Middle Eastern um, restaurant called Shuk, and they produce these amazing babkas, and um, they um, offer them for delivery as well. So normally, they're quite sweet. Um, sour cherry and pistachio or date molasses and pomegranate for example um, but I um, they approached me to do a collaboration and I wanted to do a savory version so we ended up working together on a cheese and marmite version of a babka which you know is, is beautiful and delicious but savory and also reminded me of that childhood memory of eating you know Vegemite on toast and we, we decided when we worked on this collaboration that all the money would go to Magic Breakfast. So when we worked on the book and I was asked about a childhood memory, I thought, well, this is the perfect recipe. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it over on Apple Podcasts. And then head to Substack to see more delicious things over on my Extra Bites.